Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome back to the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me on this rip is Logan Bollinger, a pretty new voice in the space. Kind of came onto the scene middle of last, middle towards the back end of last year with some writing. He has his own Substack, Think Bitcoin. And we talk about people stepping up and, and entering the space and sharing their thoughts and being open and honest and... <laughs> As you will figure as you learn more about Bitcoin um, and as you listen to shows such as this and the other podcasts that are out there, the people that come on and share these stories are so incredibly open to share their experiences purely so that you can learn from them and not make those same mistakes and perhaps start stacking more Bitcoin for yourself and your family and your future, like I said in the intro of every beginning of every show um that's what we're here to do education is key and learning from each other as we can learn from logan in this episode is very very important now please make sure you are stacking bitcoin stack those sats you can buy bitcoin now all over the world pretty much there's many services do your own research make sure you are looking out for those services that are best suited to your needs in the us you can use swan bitcoin you can use them globally if you are looking for a white glove service in the europe you can use relay r-e-l-a-i dot c-h and you can also get a white glove service from them as well coin corner are serving the uk and europe they are an exchange set up your auto buys you can also get the bulk card from them you can withdraw with lightning and please, that is a, a very important word. Withdraw. Make sure you take control of your keys. Do not leave anything to chance. If you want a, uh, a peer-to-peer global trading platform, you can use HODL. HODL, they also have their their lending, their peer-to-peer lending. This is uh, going to become pretty interesting, I think, as the, uh, the rest of the year folds out. Peer-to-peer lending. Don't look at anything else just focus on peer-to-peer lending at the moment i think it will all shape up to be very interesting as we go into the next bull run uh as i said take control if you want to up your privacy wasabi wallet has got you covered wasabiwallet.io they are a coin joining service that is going to help you break the ties between any exchanges or apps that you've used to buy Bitcoin and then you can get it into your cold storage wallet so that is the flow buy your sats use a coin join service get them into a cold storage wallet bitbox 2 by shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten will get you a 5% discount get to a conference guys Bitcoin Miami is coming up use code bitten for 10% off get to BTC Prague the same code bitten Liberty in our lifetime is going to be the uh, the back end of the year in October. More details coming soon on that. 
and download Orange Pill app and find a pleb close to you. Enjoy this rip with Logan. We're recording. We're not giving Logan any breathing space here, Lauren. <laughs> what, what Do you have a question ready? Yes, I do. You do? So I think this might be an easy one. Um, so why did you start writing articles, uh, Bitcoin articles? Oh, wow. That is a good one, Lauren. Um, so I think like a lot of people, um, when I first encountered Bitcoin and, well, the first time I encountered Bitcoin, it didn't actually stick with me, which I think a lot of people have that experience. It takes multiple times uh, encountering it to get it. But once I did, Lauren and I started to kind of see or envision all these different ways that I thought it could improve the world and and frankly, improve the environment for a lot of things that I care about in the world. I mean, I care deeply about, uh, about the arts. Um, I care deeply about our kind of public discourse and sort of the political environment. And, and I, I saw all these ways that Bitcoin could improve that and uh, really offered some uh, really novel solutions to some of the most intractable problems in those spheres. And I decided that uh, I wanted to contribute in some way. And so my background is very humanities based. Um, you know, before I was, I'm a, I'm a lawyer now. Before that, I was a high school teacher. I went to grad school for literature and, and film and, uh, you know, that's that type of art stuff. And uh, so I had always kind of enjoyed writing and I thought, you know, what skill set do I have to contribute here to Bitcoin? I think we all kind of bring, you know, the skills that we have to Bitcoin. We do what we can, we contribute what we can. And so that was what I thought I had to give. And uh, I also thought it'd be a fun way for me to meet, um, you know, cool people in the space who are doing great things, uh, not unlike your dad. And um, and it's, it's certainly done that. It's allowed me to meet a lot of a lot of wonderful people, wonderful Bitcoiners, uh, build some great relationships. So I just which is a long way of me saying I, I just wanted to do something to contribute and uh, to kind of you know do my thing in the space. That's one of the good ways. Yeah, it <laughs> is, for sure. And uh, Logan's right. That's why we started, well, that's why I started the podcast. I'm not quite sure why you bombed it. You asked us at the dinner table. <laughs> question. Yeah, I'll come. Yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah, I rue the day, actually. Do <laughs> <laughs> you have any further questions for Logan? Uh, no. No? Okay. All right. Well, thank you as always for kicking us off. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Great to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks, Logan. Um, of course. Yeah, it's uh, a big shout out to uh, to Matteo, the um, founder of Orange Pill App for... Uh, suggesting that we sit down and, and do this chat. And I think he was drawn to you by one of your pieces um, from Bernie to Bitcoin, uh, which um, we could probably get into discussing at, at some stage, but yeah, let's, let's go back because um, yeah, you, you, there's a lot to unpack in your answer to Lauren there, you know, what you were doing before you found Bitcoin. And I always find it quite fascinating to uh, l reflect on what was going on in our lives pre-Bitcoin where we were having touch points to be, we, we were being primed for Bitcoin without even realizing it in, in many cases. Um, mm -hmm. What was your, so you said you, you ended up as a, a grad school teacher at one, one stage in your career. What, what was that um, journey like? Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I think that was really interesting the way you put that, that, that we're kind of primed for Bitcoin without realizing them. Because when I look back retrospectively at some of my earlier experiences, it kind of makes sense, you know, in that way, the ways that I was primed um, to, to understand it later. 
Um, but so I, I was a high school teacher in Chicago uh, for several years um, after I, I had gone to grad school um, at the University of Chicago in Chicago. Um, and I was, you know, primarily studying literature and, you know, film and philosophy. And I really thought I wanted to be a professor. And, but, um, you know, the, the market, I mean, as you're you know, familiar, probably familiar, I know that you're uh, really interested in education and the education system, and you're probably aware of, of how dire the, you know, the, the, the college, uh, you know, if you wanted to be a college professor in America, I mean, it's a pretty dire situation. You know, there's lots of PhDs out there who are struggling to find work and it's, it's hard to find work that pays you enough to live and to get tenure and adjuncts are kind of treated almost like indentured servants. Um, so it became pretty clear to me that that was not the route that I wanted to go. It was not as, as glamorous, um, as, as perhaps I initially thought that it was. And so I kind of took a detour. I ended up, you know, teaching high school for three years um, on the west side of Chicago, which was incredibly fulfilling. Um, and I had a lot of fun doing that, uh, but it still didn't feel like the thing that I wanted to do long term. Um, so I ended up going to law school, and uh, I've been a lawyer for five years now. Um, but I first encountered Bitcoin in 2017 while I was in law school. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that was kind of in the first or in, during that cycle's crazy run up. Um, where it just it actually kind of, you know, it became somewhat of a mania on campus, frankly, for, for a little bit. Uh, and so I, I did read a book on it. I read Nathaniel Popper's book and a safe book was not out yet. Um, but uh, I, took a, I took a securities regulation class as well that we, we dove into Bitcoin and Ethereum and uh, which, was, which was really fascinating at the time. I felt like we were really on the, the edge, um, but uh, didn't talk totally stick with me at that time. And so it took me kind of another cycle to get fully into it. Were you, so were you were like fully living on campus, like you, you, you chucked in the day job or you were doing night school or what, what was the, no, I was fully on campus for law school. Yeah. Really? Yes. I was. Uh, what, yeah. How old were you then? I was 26 when I started, I think. Right. Um, which is not uncommon for law school actually. Okay. You know, a lot of law, there are a lot of law schools in America where, um, you know, they they almost prefer people who've had some work experience and don't just go out of inertia. But uh, but yeah, I was necessarily not the youngest person uh, in the program, but by no means the oldest either. Good fun. I I'm not sure, Daniel. Honestly, I don't think there's anybody who's ever been to law school who would describe it as fun, um, <laughs> unless you're just you know a uniquely masochistic individual. Um, I, I can I can say that uh, parts of it were were really interesting and intellectually uh, stimulating and fulfilling. I mean, I find U.S. constitutional law is fascinating. Um, I actually think there are some really. You know, I wrote a recent piece on you know the Second Amendment and Bitcoin. I mean, there are some interesting ways in which the United States constitutional law intersects uh, with with Bitcoin, and uh, and and those are I think it's going to the different ways in which those things intersect is going to continue to, to grow and evolve. And I, I don't even think we've begun to see the, all the myriad different ways that, that Bitcoin is going to interact with the legal system, both of America and, and elsewhere. Um, and, and in ways that we haven't even imagined yet, or it's way beyond this kind of, you know, is it, you know, security or not a security conversation. Um, so yeah, fun. Um, probably not. I did meet my wife in law school. So I often tell her that, uh, that was probably the reason that the universe sent me there was maybe more to meet her than, than, uh, you know, to be gung ho about the law, but, but here we are. Wow. Congratulations. 
Uh, so what, um, how long did that take? Uh, and when you, when you reflect on it, um, you're looking at the, uh, the younger guys that are going through, through that school, through, through any education program, I suppose, uh, at university. Um, you know, we talk about this a lot, actually, in the Bitcoin space, that amount of debt that you're burdened with at such a young age. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you probably did it in a, in a better way, in a more roundabout way. You probably <laughs> would have had some savings behind you by that point. Uh, but uh, like on reflection, you're seeing 20-year-old guys and girls come in with, with such a huge burden to carry for the rest of their lives in, in some cases. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And, and I would go further and say that um, that debt load ends up totally dictating the career paths that are often chosen by the people who you know are taking on the debt to do the school. So in, in law school in America, you know, there's, it's kind of bifurcated um, in the sense that, you know, if you go to you know, a quote, you know, a top law school, you go to one of the, the quote unquote elite schools, like a top 20 law school, um, the odds of you getting a job that pays you six figures right out of law school is much is significantly higher. Um, but the problem is if you go to basically anything mid tier and below, which candidly is, is like 80% more, it's like 95% of the, the schools, um, you have a tougher time. And so if you took out mortgage level debt um, with this idea, this kind of American dream idea that you were going to get this, be some hotshot lawyer and you were going to make, you know, $400,000 a year within a few years, um, I think you get disenchanted and disillusioned uh, pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I, I'm kind of a, a decent example of, you know, I, I did take on debt to go to law school and it did influence the decisions that I made um, in terms of the, uh, the post-law school, you know, career paths that I chose, uh, where I chose to work. Um, you know, it's all worked out ultimately for me, but, you know, I certainly know people who are living with a lot of that debt and don't have a clear avenue for how to get out from under that. And it can be really crushing, as you say. That but I think actually probably the more, yeah, I say the, the more depressing part about it, honestly, is just that you know, I, you see so many people, it's kind of after their first year of law school, they're kind of making these decisions of where do I want to work, you know, after in the, in the first summer, in the first year of law school. And, and people make these calculations, I think, that are, um, they're, they're almost, they're kind of compelled and almost sort of coerced to be pretty financially driven um, decisions. And a lot of people go, it's, it's almost a cliche, I think, at this point, people who go to law school with these um, somewhat grandiose ideas of, you know, these very altruistic ideas of I want to change the system and I want to, you know, do all that stuff. Uh, and, and some of those um, aspirations kind of meet the, the brick wall of financial reality um, pretty quickly. And I think it can just, it's, it is sort of depressing. Um, you know, it's you, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the, the famous Allen Ginsberg poem, Hal, uh, where the first line is, you know, I saw the greatest minds of my generation, you know, starving, naked, mad, it's um, ruined by X, Y, and Z. And I, I often think of, you know, I saw the greatest minds of my generation go to these elite schools thinking they're going to get these elite jobs, you know, and they're not necessarily happier or feeling more fulfilled or doing the things that they um, think are the best reflection or truest expression of their gifts. Um, and then they get kind of locked into this fiat hamster wheel. And uh, which I, I know that you, you know, personally have some familiar, familiarity with this and you've, you know, been able to kind of chart your own path in a way that I think is really cool and, and, and admirable and something 
that I think we can all kind of look to as an example. But I mean, that was obviously not an easy thing for for you to do either to kind of just chart your own course out. No, certainly wasn't. And it was 18 years chained to a desk. To, yeah. To, you know, to, to even have, have reached that point um, of realization, um, you know, and there is no magic number that that's, that's the thing, right? It, that, there is no magic number. It's just a decision you need to consciously mm-hmm. make and getting comfortable with that decision and finding conviction in that decision is very difficult as we've all known, you know, falling down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole to, to reach the level of conviction that we've reached. Uh, has taken a, a long time and a lot of learning and, you know, bumping yourself and scratching yourself many times, you know, down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. then ultimately coming to the, the comfort of knowing, well, actually there's no bottom to this thing. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to carry on falling and making it up as I go along and learning for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, does Bitcoin fix education? Like, you know, because like you just explained, all of these fiat incentives start creeping into you. Uh, it's such an insidious creep as well. It's really, it's really vile the, the, the way it happens and you end up painting yourself into this corner of just accepting the first job that comes along just to get yourself on the ladder, you know, on the, on the employment ladder. Um, 30 years later, you're fat and unhappy and you don't know how you ended up in that corner office, but somehow you made it work, right? You never lived... Yeah your life and you you, goodness knows um what your dreams and aspirations were so what i what i really like to you know think about and project is who are the 15 to 20 year olds listening to these podcasts and and what can they learn from from people like uh myself yourself and uh you know some of perhaps the uh the older guys in the in the space jeff booth people like that um you know what what what's the if they're stacking sats they all of a sudden, their the, the options just get blown open, right? I believe. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's a lot to lot to unpack there. Um, you know, when I think about education, um, you know, I, what I care deeply about and what I've kind of spent a lot of time writing about is this idea of Bitcoin um, being this definancializing force versus, uh, you know, our, our current fiat system is obviously continuing to hyper-financialize everything. I actually think Web three and its you know quote unquote Web three and its kind of current iteration you know the the current uh, articulations of it that I see is almost an accelerated version of the hyper financialization um, of everything and that I think what makes Bitcoin so interesting and promising to me on the, on uh, the topic of education or you know something like the arts creating a better environment for the arts which I've written about a lot as well is that I think just by you know, de-financializing um, the world um, in a meaningful way, you start to recreate the architecture of incentives that trickle you know, through education as well. I mean, in, in our current system, the, with how expensive you know, higher education is, it's an economically rational decision when you get there to basically say, okay, I want to do the job that pays me the most because you know that you know, if you have any modicum of financial literacy, you you know, which you actually might not because we also do a terrible job of teaching that. But um, and so you get people who who get into this, these, you know, debt, um, you know, uh, student debt issues, having no idea like what they what they've just committed themselves to. But if you have the baseline level of financial literacy, you understand that 
you know, your, your money is going to lose its purchasing power over time. Um, everything is going to get more expensive. The things that you care the most about and value the most and need the most are going to rise in price even faster than, you know, basic consumer goods or anything like that. I mean, you're, we've all seen the charts about where the you know CPI inflation level is versus things that we actually need the most like healthcare, the cost of college tuition itself, college textbooks, um, you know, all that stuff, real estate. Um, so you're, I think people in my generation and younger than me, you know, I'm kind of like a mid to late, you know, millennial, I'm not gonna call myself an old millennial, but I'm getting there. Um, you know, I think we look at this environment and think, oh my God, like how is there, I mean, it's, uh, it would almost be, you know, nonsensical and, and completely illogical of, of us to, to not pursue the most uh, financially lucrative path in the current system because that's how you survive. That's how you, if you want to be able to give anything to your children, um, if you want to be able to pass down any wealth or accumulate enough wealth to be able to pass down, if you want to be able to buy a house, which is increasingly out of reach, if you want to be able to, you know, help your parents out with, uh, you know, long-term healthcare down the road, if you want to be able to pay for your own healthcare, which is exceedingly expensive in America, um, you know, you need to be, you almost need to, to take this, you know, the ideals that you have, or this, this version of yourself that you envision when you kind of are daydreaming about what you would like to do and what you actually think that your, your gifts are. And you kind of got to set it aside a little bit, or at least it's rational to set it aside and say, I need to be more, um, sort of ruthlessly practical here and, and tactical. And I think that's, I think that's just kind of sad. I don't think that that creates a world of, uh, of happy people. I think, uh, doesn't create a world where people are incentivized to, you know, contribute, you know, what would be their kind of innate gifts to the world. And I think when people are, um, you know, inhibited from doing that, that makes the world, uh, you know, less than what it, what it could be. It makes the world less textured and magical, um, than it could be because we're preventing so many people, uh, talented people from, from giving their gifts you know, to the world that could benefit, you know, the collective and, and help drive us all forward. Um, because they're forced to go into finance basically. And they're, they're forced to go work at, be doctors and lawyers and investment. And that's like the only, and that's nothing wrong with, we obviously need doctors and, and we need lawyers and we need financial professionals, but it shouldn't be that, you know, most of America's, you know, the America's biggest industry is just financializing stuff. I mean, that doesn't, so that's kind of just a, a long-winded answer, but I think digging into how can you, by just by being in Bitcoin, by trying doing your best to advance Bitcoin, um, you're kind of front running this um, reconfiguring of the sort of like incentive architecture of how we live our lives. Uh, that I think if enough people start to do that, it becomes almost this kind of crowdsourced, like you know, real in real time construction of this new world. I think it's going to take a long time, but um, but I think if you I think it's important to constantly be painting this positive vision of the future of, you know, if, if, if you feel constrained by the world now, if you feel like you're not able to do the things you want to do, you know, having this positive vision of, okay, is there an option to at least work towards something that, that might be uh, you know, more aligned with the world you'd like to live in and uh, you know, and think about the different ways you contribute to it. And I think Bitcoin is the best um, you know, opportunity we've had to do that. Certainly that I've ever seen. It's it boggles the mind, doesn't it, to think what society has lost to fiat, the the opportunity cost of fiat, because so almost all of us end up living a life that was incentivized by fiat. You know, we, 
so many people that you, when you have these conversations, when you meet people in conferences and you, you know, like that random dude you've never met and you stand on your feet for three hours and you can't stop talking, like the deepest, deepest thoughts going through your minds with a complete stranger yeah. just because they're a Bitcoiner. Um, but because Bitcoin has now enabled them to to take a step back, to take stock, to take more time, to think more deeply about their life and rediscover themselves. It's crazy what's happening. It's beautiful what's happening. And, you know, it's, and it is going to create such an incredibly more diverse and rich society than we have at the moment where, you know, to your point earlier about law school, everyone's just trampling over each other to get that $400,000 seat. And, oh, well, sucks to be you, the guy, you know, on the billboard that's, uh, you know, ambulance chasing for the next big win, which is probably the the lion's share of, of people that go through the, you know, the, the law school education system. Yeah, I just think, yeah, it's just, it's a tough environment. Um, I, I want to just, I want to circle, I, I love what you just said about, you know, rediscovering yourself, um, which brings me back to kind of what you said initially, where you were talking about being primed subconsciously. And, and if I could just touch on that, mm -hmm. I mean, when I, one of the things that frustrated me when I was in law school, Daniel was, or not law school, sorry, when I was in grad school is that, you know, I felt, you know, for most of my, you know, kind of sentient adult life, I felt very, very passionate about, um, about uh, art and expression, you know, not necessarily visual art, not, you know, paintings and stuff. I wasn't an artist in that way, but, uh, but I was very passionate about uh, literature and, you know, what I still consider to be kind of the transformative power of, of, of that and, you know, the value to our interior lives of, of literature and, and, uh, and film and, um, you know, music and, and all that stuff. And what was really frustrating for me when I was in, uh, when I was in grad school is realizing that, you know, the, the capacity and sort of the collective audience, you know, in the world and particularly the Western world for, for what I would consider to be serious art was being, um, just almost like systematically degraded and diminished by just the, the the necessities of living in a fiat world that requires you um, to just be kind of constantly pressed uh, to, you know, to keep up with inflation um, and to just provide and, and stay ahead and not feel like you're falling behind. I mean, who wants to, I mean, if you're, you know, if you have a couple of kids and you got a mortgage and you got a stressful job to pay for everything and, um, you know, you're, you're trying to pay for healthcare and, and all this stuff. Um, you know, who has time to sort of sit down and, you know, on a Wednesday evening for, for 90 minutes and, and dig into a, um, you know, a somewhat complicated, you know, piece of writing that, it, that really, you know, kind of, you know, transports you, but it's also attempting to be kind of morally instructive or, uh, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's not, you're, you're just, you, you are not in a place where you kind of have the, the optimal capacity to do that. And I think, um, I was real having that realization while I was in grad school and, and I felt so deeply about these things. And I, I felt, Oh my God, this is so societally important, um, creating these things because I think it helps make us better people when we're all, you know, engaging because engaging in great art is kind of like, you know, having a conversation with, with yourself in some ways. And it's this journey inwards. I think that can be really productive and make you a better person. Um, you know, make you feel less alone, make you feel more connected to your fellow human being. And I thought we were really being deprived of, of it's almost like our ability to, to engage with this is being, um, you know, deprived. And, and I think there are major costs that we, they're invisible. I think, uh, you know, you were kind of also talking about, you were saying how many, 
it's amazing how many things fiat has kind of taken from us. I think some of these things are invisible. We don't really see their effects. We don't even think about them. They're sort of insidious. I think this is one of them, you know, our capacity to engage with great art and all of the, um, you know, the good things that that can do for us as people. I do think we've lost some of that. I think, um, and I, I do think that's kind of a, a tragic loss. And I, I look forward to the day and I write a lot about this, you know, I, the way that Bitcoin is able to kind of lower time preference. I think it creates a better environment, not just for artists to create, but also for audiences to receive um, the art, which is, I think, a component of that relationship that we don't talk about enough. It's probably a, the part that I disagree with, respectfully disagree a little bit with Safedine's, um, you know, opinions on on art, just because I think there's not enough focus on what we've done to the audience and how Bitcoin can actually enrich um, or make the audience, um, you know, better able to receive art. But anyways, that's um, because that was so kind of sad to me to see, I sort of abandoned or I gradually drifted away from, from this passion. I, I stopped. It felt less and it was made to feel less and less useful to me as I started to confront these necessities, uh, you know, these very financial necessities of living in the world, you know, having to provide and, and sort of make your way. And, uh, and I think Bitcoin has allowed me to kind of rediscover, like you said, in, in, a, in a little bit, the, the value of, of these things that I had sort of started to kind of mourn almost and uh, mourn my, but my sort of passion that, but uh, which has been really, um, you know, it's been really exhilarating kind of rediscovering that feeling that again. And I, I, I think often how many other people out there have this thing that they feel strongly about that they think provides all this value to the world that they've kind of had to abandon or put on the back burner because of just, you know, having to sort of live by the dictates of, of fiat world and how many people have yet to rediscover themselves, but will, if they're able to kind of, you know, if we're, if we are able to do our part in, in kind of advancing Bitcoin and bringing more people to Bitcoin, how many of these other people, um, how much untapped talent is out there, uh, that we could, um, you know, collectively benefit from as a world. Tons. Uh, absolutely tons and it's what makes me so bullish on bitcoiners uh because yeah. i know we're all out there doing our our own thing um you said at the beginning to to lauren you know you, you just felt that pull you had to do something to to give back to the community same same with me in the podcast same with many people listening to to this show and and all of the others as well you <laughs> know it will get you it will get you that there's no way you can just kind of you know, peek into the rabbit hole, walk around it a couple of times. Yeah, you, you you're gonna fall in, and you know when when you do, and you find your and you find your spot. Uh, that is so because everyone is so accepting. You know, we're not all Bitcoin toxic maximalists, uh, but as soon as you do put yourself out there, you're embraced immediately by the people that are gaining value from your work, and and that could be in anything. You know, who is the I can't think of her name. Brie Fit Dance, when she just started belly dancing out of nowhere, like and making her little mm. sailor memes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She took yeah, some shit from some people, but loads of people loved it. And, um, you know, all the power to you. If you've got the, you know, that's your skill, go do it. Doesn't matter. But um, what, when, when you say the arts, you, you mentioned film, I'd love to know what kind of films that, um, you grew up appreciating and sure. the state of the film industry these days. I, I'm I'm guessing oh, you're, yeah. you're not talking about, you know, I can't wait for the next Marvel film to drop. 
I'm not talking about that. I don't, <laughs> I do not want to cast any, you know, unnecessary shade on the Marvel universe, but, um, but I, you know, it's interesting, Daniel, cause you're, you're in France, right? So, um, you know, I think this somewhat, uh, somewhat stereotypical, but some of the films that moved me the most or that got me, uh, into film were French films. Um, and, you know, Jean Renoir, um, Jean-Luc Godard, of course, Truffaut, um, you know, all those, those guys, um, but, you know, I like, I do like a lot of foreign films. Um, and I think what attracted me to, to film is being somebody who initially was a literature person. It's a, uh, you know, film's kind of got its own language. You have a visual language and then you kind of have the narrative language going on at the same time. So, you know, there was a, certainly a stage in my life where I was getting as much excitement thinking about, you know, this sort of crazy camera movement that Scorsese was doing and, you know, Taxi Driver um, as I was getting from, you know, reading Proust or something like that, just because, um, yeah, the ability to, to tell stories in this, this visual language that is, you're not able to do, um, with just literature, uh, was, was really fascinating to me. And I think I've always compared, um, I know I don't want to get myself necessarily in trouble here, but, but to me, um, and you're in France, so I feel safe saying this to somebody who is, is in France where everybody in France, I think understands this, um, is that, uh, you know, to me, good cinema is like church, you know, it's like you, you experience it, it, it washes over you. It's kind of this cathartic experience, you kind of get run through this gamut of emotions, and it feels uh, redemptive, and it feels reaffirming. Um, and it feels also like the celebration of this, you know, messy, beautiful sort of morass that is being a human being. Um, and so, yeah, so I've always been, but, but you know, the, the film industry now, I think is stuff. It's because it's, you know, now, um, and I think this is related to Fiat too. I mean, you, you, if you're a big film studio, you need to make money. The things yep. that, that make money are these huge productions. Um, so, you know, most of the movies that get released are, I mean, you, you kind of get, uh, or, or I guess the, the different types of films that, that get national distribution are so limited. Now you basically have these like big, blockbuster slam dunks like you know you get a marvel movie or you get like a, a big dwayne johnson movie and no disrespect to again to either that i do enjoy those sometimes it's a different if i'm going to it you know for enjoyment or entertainment that's great but um you either get that or you get you know a, a handful of you know more what we would call i hesitate to use the word serious art because that, that sounds so pretentious and 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 you know just but just um the films that I guess seek to do a little bit more than to merely entertain, um, you know, you get, it's hard for those to get funding. It's hard for them to get meaningful distribution. And like I said earlier, I think the biggest issue is actually, it's hard to get in the audience um, as kind of strapped and pressed as we all are to sit down and because, you know, with any work of art that attempts to do more than merely entertain, it's asking you, that piece of art is asking you to do a little bit of work at least it's kind of making this deal with you saying, okay, Daniel, you're going to sit down and watch, you know, this film, you know, it's, I, it'll be entertaining, but I'm also asking you to do a little bit of work engaging with the film to kind of get the most out of it. You're going to have to think a little bit, um, and that sort of thing. And I think when you're just destroyed at the end of every day and you've got nothing left in the tank, what you want is to be merely entertained. Like you just want to, you, it's just kind of more passive spectation that you're interested in because you've got nothing left, uh, to sort of, you know, have a more active relationship, um, even if, you know, doing that might uh, prove more long-term uh, beneficial to you or might enrich your your life in ways that 
um, that, that sort of trickle down, you know, on a long-term perspective, which is why I think this time preference idea is probably the most, I mean, I mean for me, that's one of the most kind of uh, fundamental concepts of, of like envisioning a Bitcoin world uh, to me. But, but yeah, that's my, you know, that's, those are my thoughts on, on the film industry generally. It's pretty, it's pretty tough out there. Yeah. I don't know if it's different. Is it different in, is it different in France? Cause I know that France at least historically I, speaking has taken film very, very seriously. I, I really, I couldn't tell you. I, I tuned out so long ago to um, mm -hmm. everything that's going on in the land of, um, you know, it's just crazy. Like you said, it's just fiat. Everyone's chasing the big dollars. I mean, how many Spider-Man movies can there be about the same thing? Like it, yeah. <laughs> it just drives me nuts. Uh, and yeah. you're right. And all people are expected to do now when engaging with these films is just like the suspended disbelief, right? That's it. If you're going to do that, which is all people want, because they've got that hour and a half, two hours, where they just want to like zone out, eat chocolate bars or popcorn and drink their drinks. And just like, you know, that's their treat. They don't want to be thinking yeah. about anything else. They just shove guns and helicopters at me. Let's go. I'm, I'm yours for an hour and a half. And it's, yeah. it's, it's pathetic. Totally. It's, um, it's yeah, so it's, I, I, it's, I don't even blame. Yeah. It's just, and it's, it's, it's hard for me to, to necessarily, I can't even blame the people for wanting that. I mean, there we're all, we all exist in this system um, that has sort of molded us in this way. It's, it's really hard to navigate your way out or to see something different. You know, it's, you know, I don't, I don't want it to come across as like, you know, me kind of crapping on, you know, the average person who, which is also me, you know, comes home from work and wants to zone out for a little bit. Um, Cause that's, we're just, we're kind of, doing our we're all doing our best um but i think you know the, the nice thing about bitcoin at least is there's there, you know there's something um you can kind of look to to say okay is there maybe a way that that this could be different so where does politics enter your story because one of the pieces the piece that um i think uh matteo first uh was drawn to your attention and you know <laughs> put me on your radar put you on my radar excuse me was your piece um from bernie to bitcoin yeah, yeah, that's um. So for me, I think a lot of the same reasons that um, I was attracted to Bitcoin. Um, interestingly, were kind of similar reasons to why I was attracted to you know, politics, um, which is really about system change uh, for me. So I was attracted to, um, and, you know, the 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 Bernie to Bitcoin pieces. There are a couple of them. Um, I'm working on a third one um, actually, but. And those were just meant to sort of describe my journey from being somebody who, in 2016, uh, I was very much a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, very much considered myself uh, progressive. And the reason I was attracted to uh, to Bernie Sanders is, you know, because of this idea of system change. And, you know, for a lot of the same reasons that I'm attracted to Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is also changes the system. Um, but, you know, I think, for me in 20, um, I guess I'm not even talking about 2016, I'm talking about 2020. Um, but, you know, for me, we're looking at Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, I guess I thought, okay, we have all the, all these problems that you and I have just, just discussed. Um, you know, he seems like he's addressing them certainly better than, um, than it seemed to me at the time than anybody else was. But at the time, you know, I wasn't, as educated on, you know, uh, you know, what is money, monetary policy, inflation, that sort of stuff. So I had a lot to learn there, but um, the primary thing that attracted me was this idea of just 
fundamentally something is broken with kind of the fabric of American society. And, you know, it's not, it's not sort of, um, you know, the type of, of world or system that I want to live in, or that I think a lot of people are able to find fulfillment in. And so how can we change it in important ways to make it so that it is uh, the type of system where people are able to, you know, contribute, uh, you know, their fullest expressions of themselves to, uh, to the world. And so at the time uh, I thought, you know, Bernie was this different, um, you know, type of politician. He wasn't Joe Biden. He wasn't, uh, Donald Trump. You know, he wasn't a career politician, um, like Biden, whose kind of political positions were sort of, at least in my opinion, kind of always evolving and landing into what he thought would be the most electable position. Um, and he wasn't Trump as like, you know, totally all over the place and kind of just scattered as, as, uh, and sort of incoherent, um, frankly, among other kind of issues with Trump. Um, so I don't know, he seems like, uh, like somebody who was just, was just different, but it was the whole experience to me was so disillusioning, um, you know, kind of seeing the status quo kind of coalesce at the end around, around Biden, um, that it really, it really caused me to reflect on a lot of things. And that was kind of around the time when I discovered Bitcoin and the two, those two experiences, um, you know, being disillusioned by the, by the way the Bernie Sanders campaign ended and reflecting on that. And, you know, then kind of my rediscovery of Bitcoin and going just fully, just kind of fully humbling myself to it and just falling down the rabbit hole. Uh, those two things came together and, and I, I try to tell my story in those articles of just, I think there are a lot of Bitcoins out there who will probably hear this and be like, what an idiot, you know, this is this guy, you know, and I get this all the time. People are like, Oh, I, I, you lost me when I heard Bernie. I mean, this person is clearly a moron, um, which that's fine. Um, you know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but, um, but I do think there are a lot more people who are making that journey um, from a more progressive uh, political background to being Bitcoin. I think it's, more way more common um than people think it is um it's just you know maybe those you know those voices aren't always making it into you know different people's um you know kind of twitter streams or or the sort of echo chambers that they live in so for us listening on on this side of the pond what was bernie running his campaign on what was the big promise what was the uh you know what was on the ticket what was the idea yeah, so, so I would say his, his biggest ideas, um, you know, were he was obviously, you know, he wanted to change the healthcare system dramatically in America. I mean, healthcare in America is an absolute shit show. Um, and uh, it's it just, it's just really hard. So, I mean, people get just really crippled um, economically every time they interact with our healthcare system. So that was a big one, you know, getting universal healthcare, um, not unlike, say, you know, Canada has, or even France has like some version of socialized healthcare. Um, which, you know, I think, you know, Bernie would not infrequently reference that like, oh, you want to call this socialism? Well, like, you know, there are other countries who have some socialized things and some non-socialized things, but, um, but so there was that, um, you know, and just kind of, he was very focused on wealth inequality and on the wealth gap, the growing wealth gap and, you know, the sort of the way that, you know, capitalism as kind of practiced today leads to a lot of the, the wealthier, um, you know, continuing to get wealthy and, the poor continue to get poorer, which we in the Bitcoin community would talk about, uh, you know, in reference to the cancel on effect, um, which really, you know, the interesting thing is what, you know, what somebody like Bernie described, he just describes the cancel on effect. Mm -hmm. um, like he, he diagnoses 
a lot of the, the, the same problems that Bitcoiners would diagnose. He just, it's just a different proposed solution. And it's the solution that he uh, proposes that Bitcoiners would kind of radically disagree with and say, well, you know, we were with you when you were pointing out the problems. We're there, we got you. But, you know, the, uh, the solution is, is, you know, no, you're, you're kind of, you veered off in one direction on the solution. And that solution is actually going to exacerbate the very problems that you're seeking to solve, mm-hmm. um, which becomes a sort of vicious cycle um, versus, you know, Bitcoiners kind of go a different direction and which I don't think is either left or right. It's just its own direction and say, okay, both the left and the right, you guys have kind of, um, you know, you, you are not going to solve these problems within these dusty old kind of partisan frameworks that you guys are working in. We need something different. And, uh, but, but I do think it's interesting that, and that's why I think there are a lot of uh, you know people who come from you know progressive backgrounds or who at least identify a little bit more or or at least before finding Bitcoin identified a little bit more with um, the left are being drawn to Bitcoin more and more um, because if you're able to be reflective on how much um, you know your political affiliation just boils down to more of like identity stuff than actually solving problems, um, then you can kind of detach yourself a little bit from it. And reflect and say, oh, okay, I actually do care about these problems. Um, but if I step away from, you know, which tribe I want to, you know, kind of identify myself with, which might be for more like social signaling than actual, um, you know, solution-oriented thinking, if I detach myself from all that and and actually try to think as objectively and reflectively about solving the problems that I care about, where does that, that thinking lead me? Does that take me to, you know, Democrats? Does that take me to Republicans? Does that take me to, like, where does that take me and if and if you kind of allow yourself um you know to sort of not just be kind of drawn by the magnet of you know tribal identity uh, i think uh, people more and more are kind of taking a hard look at bitcoin and being like well you know maybe maybe this addresses some of these problems and and so i that was really profound for me that journey um kind of uncovering that and there were some people along the way uh, that I learned a lot from that were really valuable. Um, you know, you did an episode with Troy Cross a long time ago, not that yep. long ago, but, yep. um, but you know, when I was already pretty well into my journey at that time, I'd probably actually already written on some of the Bernie pieces, but that was an amazing conversation. And I, you know, I listened to that a couple of times and, uh, and, you know, I've since met, met Troy. Um, but, you know, people like that are, are there are more and more of them. And I think that's, that's net good for Bitcoin. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I remember uh, Troy and I, um, we hung out in Madeira as well when we were over there together. And yeah, we, we referenced that conversation um, a lot because uh, he, he he's he's taken a year sabbatical, right? You, you were talking about how hard it is to get tenureship and, um, you know, be a professor with a PhD. There's a long queue at that door. He's walked away from it and he might walk away from it forever. And, you know, that's such a huge decision, mm-hmm. especially if you're married with kids. doesn't matter how much Bitcoin you may or may not have, right? That That is still a huge life decision um, to, to give up that good of a position, something you've put your whole life's work and effort into, but walk away from it because you felt the draw of Bitcoin and you know you can make a difference. And now... He's on Team Bitcoin and, you know, all the power to him. He's doing some great work and he's done some amazing writing. And he will inspire many more people to to follow in his footsteps. Uh, and it's just interesting to, like, your your particular journey. So you're entrenched in this. But how close were you to the campaign? 
I did some volunteer work um, on the campaign. You know, I contributed uh, regularly financially. Um, interestingly enough, I was, you know, I was working at a, a, a big law firm at the time, you know, I was doing corporate law, I was doing the type of stuff that would seem to be somewhat uh, like anathema to, uh, you know, the Bernie Sanders vibe. But, um, but yeah, it was mostly, you know, I was, I was contributing, uh, I was doing some volunteering, um, you know, just stuff like that. I wasn't, you know, going door to door canvassing or anything like that, but, right. but uh, I was participating a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time that's going on, you're falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So like you've got. It was probably the timeline of that is probably <clears throat> after it was my real fall down the Bitcoin rabbit hole was probably a month or two after um, Bernie had conceded, you know, Biden kind of, um, you know, you know, Bernie won several of the initial primary states and it was looking like, wow, this might actually be, we might do this. Um, it almost seemed inevitable uh, at the time. And uh, not unlike Hillary seemed inevitable at the time, which is why I actually, I think if, if life and history teaches us anything, it's that nothing is inevitable and we should, you know, always be, you know, clear eyed um, about that. Uh, but, you know, when, when the Bernie campaign ended, uh, you know, COVID hit pretty soon after that. And uh, I was, I was living in downtown Chicago with my wife at the time. It was pretty, pretty crazy time um, to be there. And um and what led me to Bitcoin again, or led me back to Bitcoin was, you know, the, the crazy stuff that was happening in the stock market at the time, you know, COVID happens, everything goes plummets uh, just dramatically and kind of horrifyingly uh, initially. But then, you know, after a few weeks, despite all of the remaining unknowns about how, you know, states and governments were going to respond to this and the effects that was going to have on the economy, and just, we had so many unknowns, the, you know, the market starts to, we start pumping the liquidity in and the market starts going up. And that just seemed really, uh, I mean, I had a lot of questions. It didn't make any, I mean, I was following these things pretty closely and it just, it, I was, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I started kind of digging into why is this, why is this happening? And uh, it seemed like the people who were talking about this the most at the time were Bitcoiners. And uh, <laughs> which was, and so I, I started kind of, List reading, um, you know, pieces by these people and following their Twitter accounts and listening to podcasts, doing what everybody does when they start to go down the rabbit hole, um, finding these these people whose voices they resonate with and who are articulating things in ways that they that they understand, and and a lot of stuff started to make sense to me um, at, at that point, and 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 that was kind of the beginning of me starting to really uh, look in the mirror and look at kind of things that up to that point, I thought I believed politically and, um, you know, just about how the world operates, uh, economically. I mean, you, I think one of the cool things that Bitcoin forces you to do is to really re-examine everything that you thought was true. Um, and, and just kind of reevaluate is, is this all true? It very is. That's I think the matrix memes are pretty spot on for that reason. Cause it really is a red pill, blue pill situation. Um, so, that was my experience. And then once I was off to the races with it, I was just off to the races with it. It was, uh, and I've, and I've you know, been here ever since, but, but that was the the big moment for me. And do you see it in, um, and I know you're, you're not a pseudonym here. So, you know, the people you work with, uh, I'm sure they know your, your, um, your, your work within the Bitcoin space. How's it changed your day-to-day -day life and how you view 
um, is it corporate law you're still doing or are you? I don't do, I don't do corporate law anymore. Um, no, I do something totally different now. Um, yeah, now I mostly represent injured workers. Um, so, which I feel ideologically excellent (laughs) about. I was going to say, if you were still doing corporate law, that would, there would be a lot of, I'm sure you can look back on some cases that you've, uh, either won or sat in and watched and uh, been a part of and now can see it through a Bitcoin lens in a completely different way? Yeah, I think the way that I see things now is, or what becomes clear to me is just how thoroughly um, and just totalizingly uh, financialized the world is um, and really how many jobs and you know how much of you know, GDP and economic activity is really just layers and layers of financialization that is increasingly tenuously related to actual productive active productive economic activity. Um, you know, just just this kind of I don't know, really abstruse and and complex web of of you know sort of uh, financialization um, that we live under now. Which it just when I was you know, working in corporate law, um, you know, up until probably 2020, I mean, it all just seemed kind of, oh, this is just the way that it is. I don't really understand it. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, but, or maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand it. I don't know. Um, but what Bitcoin has allowed me to do is kind of look look at it and from a different light and think, or and understand now that, you know, some of the the complexity is sort of intentional and it's really just, you're just kind of a, uh, it's like just just pulling just layers and layers away from anything true, um, and so so I'm very focused on you know, a lot of the stuff I write about is you know about this idea of definancialization versus hyperfinancialization and all the various ways that uh, you know the former is is better for us than the latter. But so I, I view a lot of things now through that light, including including my former job. Um, and you know how I conduct myself today, and, and what I think is, you know, a, a good path or a bad path for the future is. I'm mean, kind of seeing it through that light now. Now, as you're going down this journey, and this is another thing probably not talked about enough in, in the Bitcoin space. It's affecting your wife as well, right? Whether you whether you yeah. want it to or not, it mm-hmm. is. Um, maybe in a positive manner, maybe not. Uh, I know my wife thought I was going crazy. I've heard many other people say the same thing. One friend of mine, actually, his wife said to me, I didn't know who he was for about two weeks. I had no, <laughs> and that was after a Zoom call with myself. So <laughs> uh, that's funny. So, you know, what what was going on? Because weird times, right? You'd been wrapped up in yeah. this campaign thing. You'd lost faith in a politic, uh, political system. You were um, now all locked down in Chicago and all this weirdness was happening. And now you're talking about Austrian economics, time preference, and this fucking magic internet money. Like th- weird times for um, for Mrs. Yeah. Logan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was weird times. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of exhilarating too, though, exhilarating times as well. You know, you're in the middle of this, 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 journey that's both intellectual it also has some kind of spiritual components to it as well mm-hmm. um you feel like different parts of the universe are kind of being i mean i don't want to speak too kind of grandiosely here but you, things are sort of starting to make a little bit of sense or more sense than they've made in a while um 
I got, I'm very lucky. My, my wife is, is, and my wife is smarter than me. And she, when we started talking about Bitcoin, I mean, I was certainly the first person, uh, you know, to get into it. I got into it, uh, you know, first I, I really went down the rabbit hole and I didn't kind of start talking to her about it right away. I was kind of doing almost like this. It was, I was almost like living a double life. I was like surreptitiously devouring Bitcoin content. You know, I'd be on walks and stuff, you know, listening to podcasts and I'm, I'm reading books and, and, uh, and all this is kind of happening in plain sight, but we're not really talking about it yet. Uh, but as soon as I, as soon as we did start talking about it, um, and I, you know, I started explaining to her why I found it so compelling and fascinating and, and, and where I thought it could go and, and the role I thought it could play in the, in, in the, uh, in the world and the financial system. And, and she just got it. I mean, it, it's, uh, it just clicked and it's been like that ever, ever since. I mean, there's been no, I think that she, I mean, she's, um, I don't know, it's hard to describe. I think she, she's much more in tune with kind of the rhythms of the universe than I, than I am. Um, if that, may, that sounds a little woo woo. Uh, I don't mean for it to sound woo. I just mean that um, for me, it felt like, uh, and I think for a lot of people, you know, in the fiat world, you feel like you're living in this cloud of, of almost like confusion a little bit. And you don't know where the walls are and where the rails are and what to hold on to. Bitcoin comes and kind of clears that up. I think she was already living in a more, um, in a space of, 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 of you know, more clarity uh, than I was about things. And I think, it just made sense to her. She was like, Oh yeah, that, of course, like that's, uh, and so we've been completely, uh, on the same page ever since. And, uh, and it was, it was honestly, and I, I know this sounds improbable, but it was, there was never any struggle. There was no convincing. There was no, I don't, I, if she thought that I was out of my mind, she, you know, was, uh, kind and gentle enough not to tell me that <laughs> and, uh, to her credit. And, uh, and yeah, we've, it, it's been great. I kind of, cause I, I do get this question sometimes and I know that some people, it makes sense that there could be a little, you know, when Bitcoin kind of grabs onto you, it, it does kind of, you obsess about it for, you know, the first six months or a year, whatever you're in it, sometimes, sometimes longer. And so I can see how that would be, you know, your, your significant other is probably looking at you like, wow, what is happening? Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just got really lucky. It's just, it has, it has worked. Um, she was probably so, thinking, yeah. God damn it. Thank God. She'd been, she'd probably been binging sailor <laughs> behind your back. Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, exactly. And she's just, you know, trying to find ways to kind of, you know, sneak it into my existence and, and sort of let me think that I was the one who kicked out with it. But, um, but yeah, no, I think it's probably just, it's just a, a credit to her and, and um, yeah, just, just just clicked faster all right let, let's talk about your your articles and um <laughs> what we can go through your last one because that'll be a fun thing to do so it's think sure. bitcoin right uh is the that's correct yeah yeah it's it, on Substack. oh you, you got it all up there and um you i think this is number 47 so prolific writing uh you know you're, you're not holding back here uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to lay it all out there. It's it, it's a yeah. It becomes sometimes it's it's a heavy lift because uh, every issue is like an essay. Basically, you know, it's mm -hmm. not. I try not to be. I don't want to be news. Um, you know, I want to be like here are my thoughts, and uh, and try to write them in a way that's long form and hopefully interesting. Uh, it will resonate with who it needs to resonate with. That's the beauty of it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's you know, thank you for 
for your work. Thank you for putting it out there. So reflections on 22 and predictions for 23. So before we go through the predictions, which, you know, just to bait the hook there for the listeners, uh, what what were your reflections on on 22? And then we'll get into the predictions. Oh man, 2022 was, I think, I think 2022 is a year certainly in Bitcoin that, you know, I've, I've only been kind of, I mean, I've been very into Bitcoin for the last kind of three years. I've been kind of into Bitcoin for the last five. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to speak like I'm some kind of vet, grizzled veteran, you know, who's been, I find that annoying when people, you know, pretend they're that, but because uh, I'm not, I haven't been around for for a, a bunch of cycles. I haven't been around since 2012 or anything, but suffice it to say though, or, you know, I, I still think it would be a fair assessment to say 2022 is is a year that nobody is going to forget um, in terms of Bitcoin, just because of the, the fireworks in kind of the surrounding, you know, larger, broader crypto space, um, you know, and the price gyrations, um, you know, it's just, it was a volatile year to be in or adjacent to the space. And, um, you know, I also think with, it, where Bitcoin is more on the minds of regulators than I think it's ever been. It's more on the minds of politicians than it's ever been. It's kind of reached the stage of relevance. It's never been this relevant before. I mean, I think there's also from a geopolitical and global perspective, um, its use case is becoming increasingly salient and obvious and more so than it's ever been. I think when you were cutting Russia off from the global financial system, you know, the idea, it, other central banks. I don't think it's a profound, it's certainly not a new point um, to make to say that other, um, you know, sovereigns are probably looking at at that and saying, whoa, um, if that can happen, you know, make should we maybe think about getting something that, um, you know, can't be confiscated or rendered useless. Um, so, you know, I think all that's going on. I, so I just think it was a, a momentous and totally volatile year. Uh, Bitcoin, I will certainly never forget it from a personal perspective to me. Um, this is kind of a, a stark juxtaposition because from a personal perspective for me, it was um, actually quite a positive year. It was kind of an incredible year. I met so many um, Bitcoiners, um, had the opportunity to do lots of cool things in the space. Uh, I was able to you know, be on lots of podcasts and you know, you know, be on this podcast with you now. Obviously, we're in 2023, but got to hang out with people like Pete McCormick, um, you know, just talked to a lot of people last year. Um, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, shout out to Swan. Um, that was great. Meeting people like Mateo, um, you know, people starting businesses and, and you know, doing these really cool things um, in the Bitcoin space. So I feel like I really built, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of cool connections and people I hope to work with in the future. But, but yeah, I'm hoping uh, that 2023 certainly is, um, I don't want to say, uh, yeah, I don't want to say I'm hoping that it is less exciting. Uh, I just I hope for, you know, a different, a different flavor of exciting, you know, exciting can be, um, you know, come in different forms, but, but yeah, so TLDR, you know, 2022 was, was, was wild. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I've got a feeling 23 might top it, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. So let's yeah. go through predictions and prediction number one, you kind of already touched on it. Uh, regulation arrives and then you've put um, in, in brackets here in some form. So yeah, yeah, let's let's uh, flesh that out. Regulation arriving to to Bitcoin. Yeah, how? 
I think there are a couple of different scenarios that that this can that this can go. I think you know when I say that I think regulation arrives. I just what I mean is that I think that it's it's going to be it's increasingly politically untenable um, in the U.S. I think to in light of the FTX collapse and all of the you know the damage that was wrought by that. I think it's increasingly just politically not feasible to do nothing um, about you know, the, the, the broader crypto space generally. And so I think the issue is really, I do think there's, there's probably some challenges to a bill actually getting passed because it would have to have some level of bipartisan support. And I'm not, not sure that, I mean, the, you know, gridlocking Congress is, is, is notoriously awful. So I'm not sure that, that something gets done, but I do think there are going to be proposals. And I think the question really is just, is it, is it going to be kind of an Elizabeth Warren tact where you're just like, let's just kill everything, um, including Bitcoin. Let's just kill it all um, because it's all bad and there's nothing worth salvaging here at all. Um, or is it this more kind of, uh, you know, carefully crafted legislation that sort of caters to the industry a little bit, something more along the lines of what, you know, I think the crypto industry is lobbying for, you know, a softer touch, uh, something that would preserve uh, you know, the perceived innovation of, of crypto um, while kind of putting some guardrails on it. And, um, you know, I think specifically thinking about Bitcoin, uh, I think Bitcoin is in, is in such a, a, a good, at least comparatively good regulatory position because I, I, don't, I don't think there's really any compelling legal argument that Bitcoin is a security. Um, so you don't actually have to rewrite any laws for Bitcoin to be not regulated by the SEC. Um, it, it already shouldn't be because um, I don't even think Gary Gensler thinks it's a security. I mean, it's a, and he's kind of you know, spoken publicly about that. He's obsessed with the, you know, the Howey test, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the test for securities or you know, for what constitutes a security under the uh, Securities Act of 1933 in America. Uh, he talks about it all the time. And, and he knows, I think that, that Bitcoin is just doesn't, doesn't fall in there. But I think one of the, um, you know, interesting twists on the regulation uh, story could be, though, you know, if there is regulation that is passed, that is kind of this sort of thoughtful, crypto friendly, let's preserve the industry while, um, you know, kind of weeding out the bad actors. If there's regulatory clarity, that's that's kind of friendly. Um, I do. Th- I, th- I mean, it's, it's, of course, good for Bitcoin, um, kind of just by association. Um, but I do think that that will probably be more beneficial um, to other coins. Um, and I think it'll kind of extend and prolong um, the existence of, you know, the altcoin world and, um, you know, the rest of the crypto space. And I think whether we, uh, you know, want to believe that or not, I know that I, it, it's it's kind of everybody's favorite pastime, I think, to sort of uh, predict Ethereum's demise. Um, but I, I just, just calling it like I see it, I think, um, and just being honest, I, I think that if if we get some good regulation uh, or you know, regulation that is, you know, not extremely draconian, um, I don't think it's rational to suggest that that doesn't benefit something like Ethereum quite a bit. Um, but I, I, all that being said, I don't think Bitcoin has. If Bitcoin is going to, um, you know, be affected negatively by regulation, I don't think it's going to be anything related to securities. I think it would have more to do with more. Uh, backdoor approaches through uh, environmental 
stuff like that. Um, you, you can't really get it on, on securities. So just if, and I don't want to put you on the test, uh, on, excuse me, I don't want to put you on the spot about the Howie test. Um, can you define that for, for those people listening that, uh, that might not be familiar? Yeah. And actually here, I'll just pull it up for you right now. Cause there's a four prong test. Um, and what the test is for, it's not actually what is a security. The test is for what constitutes an investment contract, um, and an investment contract under the security, under the securities act of 1933 mm-hmm. is, is, is a security. So the Howley test, you have to meet all four prongs of it to be considered an investment contract. And if you're an investment contract, then you're a security. And so the four prongs are, it has to be an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. So those are the, the four prongs. Um, and, you know, I think people, it's it's almost, I think, impossible to argue with a straight face that that 99% of crypto doesn't does not fall and it does not you know pass all four prongs i think almost all of it does um the prongs of it that you know that bitcoin fails or that most people you know thinks that it fails are you know two three and four you know being a common enterprise um with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts um of others because with bitcoin there's no centralized um you know, foundation at the top of it. Nobody's kind of working in concert to sort of, you know, coordinate, um, you know, its success. It's a bunch of decentralized, totally independent people acting in a way that um, it's not really like in concert, um, but just by them acting and sort of, you know, doing their job as nodes, it's, you know, arguably beneficial. I mean, obviously beneficial, but, um, but I think the Howey tests, you look at the rest of, of crypto i mean every, you know when you have the ethereum foundation and you have like the solana foundation and it's just different it's different and i think ripple I don't, again, a, I, yeah. a perfect example yeah exactly yeah, ripple's uh, totally perfect yeah and i think the um you know the interesting thing here is i do think there's an interesting discussion to be had about all this because you know we're talking about the securities laws this is this is a, a law that was written in 1933 when people, I think sometimes people make the, they they uh, extrapolate from kind of a legal argument, like an, an ethical argument, and which I think people should just be careful of kind of the soundness um, of that. Because if, if the argument is basically, oh, this is unethical because it violates the securities laws of 1933. I mean, historically, how many laws you couldn't apply that logic historically and have it work. I mean, there have been a lot of laws that have been um, that the laws themselves we would consider now to be totally immoral. So, I mean, something is not moral or ethical or not moral or ethical because it's a, a law written by some people at some point in time based on things that they thought were true or useful at that time. Um, so, which is all to say, because I, I think it's possible that the securities laws get kind of meaningfully rewritten and then if the only argument that Bitcoiners are using is, oh, it's just unethical because it's an unregistered security, if the law changes such that it's not an unregistered security, I mean, and, and your only argument is that it's unethical because it's unregistered security, I mean, then you look you look like you don't have as much of a compelling case to make when in fact we do have a really compelling case to make that has nothing to do with securities. If we just, everything that we've already talked about, Daniel, I, I hope is like a compelling positive vision for, for why we should have Bitcoin and why Bitcoin you know, can create a better world than, than all these other things. Um, 
So I do, as an aside, I don't want to sort of get too controversial. I do worry a little bit about, you know, kind of over-indexing on the the ethics or lack thereof of securities laws. Right. Okay. And coming from a lawyer, that's that's good to uh, that's good to know. Thank you for uh, defining that. That's very cool. Um, yeah. Like the how we test <laughs> Bitcoin. Bitcoin fails. So, yeah, uh, which is which is good. You don't yes. want Bitcoin to be. Uh, yeah, it's we don't, we don't want, want Bitcoin, Bitcoin to, to be pass security. the Howie test. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, prediction two: uh, the macro narrative recedes, and payments narrative ascends. Yeah. So this one was about, um, you know, I think in you know from twenty, I think a lot of people, if you got into Bitcoin um, in 2020, 2021, a lot of the reason that, that you were probably drawn in had to do with the macro environment. I mean, this certainly applies to me, uh, like we talked about earlier. I mean, mm-hmm. just seeing the, the the macro environment implode and then kind of all the weird things that happen after that. Um, but I, you know, I do think some of the macro narratives um, are getting a little bit, are getting tested or being a little bit overplayed. I think what happened was you then had you know this army of people who, all of a sudden we're kind of macroeconomic experts overnight and, you know, we're predicting the demise of the dollar, like, like imminently like tomorrow. And, you know, uh, which, and all that, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not a macroeconomist. Um, you know, maybe all that happens down the road, but I think it's pretty safe to say it's not happening tomorrow. It's not happening next year. Um, and, and I think, I think for this, the purpose of adoption, I'm not sure how useful, um, it is to to approach things strictly through a macroeconomic lens of just trying to. I do think it's important for people to understand what money is and have a better understanding of that. Um, but I, I, at the same time, it's a balance, right? Though, because I think at the same time, people's eyes tend to gloss over a little bit when you're kind of just saying, "Well, let me tell you about the Fed. Do you want to hear about the Fed? Let's talk about it." You know, and, and uh, you know, so I, I think uh, anybody who's ever been a teacher um, or you know, homeschool a child, you know, you, you got to. Um, think of different ways to uh you know different narratives to uh, to get information across so i do think the macroeconomic narrative is important but i think um the idea of the inflation hedge is or the way that 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 narrative that macro narrative has been kind of commonly pitched i think is i don't want to say that it's failed because the correct response is actually that you know bitcoin is not like a cpi inflation hedge it's like a currency debasement hedge and so if we define inflation by its more classical definition of expansion of the money supply versus just, you know, increased price of goods. So, um, which is kind of like currency debasement versus, you know, the very manipulated kind of CPI number. Um, in that sense, I think Bitcoin is is absolutely a, de- a debasement hedge for sure. But most people who are kind of coming into Bitcoin are, are seeing this inflation hedge narrative. A lot of people are kind of preaching this inflation hedge narrative and linking it to CPI, which I think is a little bit, somewhat misleading and we had this this huge run-up of cpi and um and it 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 killed all assets basically so um including you know bitcoin plummeted as well Um, and so there are a lot of people who kind of were left feeling like well wow i thought that was an inflation hedge so why didn't it work and even though the correct answer is well it is it's just not inflation is maybe not what you necessarily think it is it's an inflation hedge if we're talking if we're defining it in its more classical sense but um but i also think the macro the macro narratives are getting really messy. There's a lot of geopolitical uncertainty out there. Um, you know, we have, there's a war going on. 
Um, the world is becoming increasingly kind of multipolar. Uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of de-dollarization efforts happening. There's a lot of like very complicated, um, big chess moves being conducted that I think, I think it's impossible, frankly, for anybody to, to really claim or purport to have a command over where that all goes directionally. And so I think um, what is more interesting to me and what I think is more important for the um, growing adoption of Bitcoin is how it's continuing to be actually used and adopted in people's lives on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's happening at a payments level. Uh, it's happening a lot in you know, developing countries. It's happening in um, you know Africa and South America. Um, and if you know you look at the charts of where Bitcoin is being used the most, um, you know it's it's like Vietnam and Afghanistan. And it's 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 not you know Germany um, or France or, or the U.S. Um, although I think the U.S. is somewhere in the top twenty. But but so I find I do think that the adoption and the sort of real like step function, uh, you know, next move of Bitcoin is going to be tied to um, a growing mass of human beings, real people using it in a way that's not just as an investment instrument, which is kind of how it gets used in the West. It's just hodl it, hold on to it. It's an investment. Um, don't do anything with it. Um, and which in our economic environment where it's comparatively stable, it, it's economically sensible to just do that. It doesn't make as much sense for you or I to go out and buy coffee with our Bitcoin. Um, but, um, but I do think the growing adoption um, in these developing countries, more human beings using it, means that the there's going to be more incentive to create technology um, for you know better user experience around using it. People are just going to build out the rails and infrastructure. They're going to be incentivized to do that because they have more users. Um, and I think that's kind of like the uh, I, I don't know. I feel like that's going to be the neck like a big driver of adoption. And I think rather than having a bunch of us just theorize on Twitter about macroeconomics, as fascinating as it is, and it's, it is certainly relevant, I'm not dismissing it, um, but it's, that's, it's kind of the old kind of theory versus praxis thing. I think there's a lot happening in praxis, which we don't all necessarily see because it's happening probably not in the country where we are. Um, but I think that's the rubber starting to hit the road there. And I think that's, um, you know, going to be, uh, going to have some, uh, some, some pretty significant downstream effects in the coming years. Yeah. And there's so many great grassroots kind of, um, initiatives going on. I've had the bridge to Bitcoin guys on from the UK that are you know, making it a, a goal to orange pill as many merchants as possible. So the merchants are accepting Bitcoin and just Bitcoin accepted here. And then I've seen it in my brother's cafe. He accepts Bitcoin now. And if Bitcoin is drive from two hours away to come and buy a coffee and a croissant and a houseplant from his cafe. And everybody else in there at that point sees the excitement. What's the hubbub over at the cash register right now? Because they're ringing up a Bitcoin transaction and they're taking pictures of themselves and no one's been happier to spend money in their life. And they're tweeting it. And and like everyone. And so for 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 the people watching that and seeing that, it's not so much a question anymore of what is money. It's like, oh, Bitcoin is money because they're seeing it in yeah. everyday life. And the more merchant adoption we can have, and Coin Corner, a sponsor of this show, Quiet Shill, they're doing such a great job because merchants now in the UK and around Europe can just open a merchant account with Coin Corner, accept Bitcoin 
as payment, but have the payment hit their account in euros or pounds. So even if they're not ready as a business to adopt Bitcoin on the balance sheet, they don't need to, but they are offering another avenue of payment to their customer. It's like if a customer says, do you accept MasterCard or Visa? You don't get pissed off, right? So now if a customer right. says, do you, do you accept MasterCard, Visa or Bitcoin? Well, no, I don't accept Bitcoin. I don't know how to. It's like, well, here's how to. And this is how the Bridge to Bitcoin guys are doing it um, and around the UK. And I'm sure they're doing it as well in many other countries. Uh, they're... You know, when you meet the um, when you meet people from other countries, especially in Europe, uh, and the, you listen to the initiatives that are going on in in Holland or in Czechoslovakia or in Germany or in Spain, uh, we're all so close together, but yet we've we've all got so many completely different ideas of of how this goes, uh, how this progresses and goes forward. And Orange mm -hmm. Pill App, you know, their idea is we need more plebs together. And if we get yeah. more plebs together, we create more meetups. And if we create more meetups, we create more smaller communities. And if we've got that, then we can go out and orange pill the merchants. And this is how we keep this going. So, yeah, yeah I like no, it. Yeah, that's totally, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, what you're making me think of is, you know, I think we what we shouldn't be aiming toward is, is you know, oh, how can we make everybody an investor and convince everybody that they should be an investor and invest in Bitcoin? I think what you need to do is, show people how bitcoin can actually function in within the sort of like the fabric of their their daily lives because i i really I, I think the i actually think it's kind of a like a fiat mental model this idea of like oh everybody should be an investor we should all be investors because of course we should all be investors and and uh so let's tell people why they should be investing in bitcoin um that's going to work for some people sure but i think for for global adoption um you know i think it's everything that you just said let's mm -hmm. show people how it works and, and how it can be used in everyday life. And uh, even if you don't want to use yours in everyday life, that's your choice. Um, but let's weave it into everyday life in more ways, make it more familiar. Yeah. Not so much. What is money more? Look, it's money because yeah, not everybody is sadly not, you know, most people aren't investing. Most people aren't working in financial markets and, you know, yes, adept exactly. to, studying the macro economics and most people are just trying to get by. Yeah. So giving people the same pitch that you would give as like an investment pitch to, I don't know, somebody who works at JP Morgan, it's not going to work for like your average you know, dude on the street. Who's just not investing and just kind of living largely, uh, you know, maybe not paycheck to paycheck, maybe paycheck to paycheck, but also, you know, maybe has some savings, but is not thinking about, wow, how do I have a, an appropriately diversified portfolio and like how does bitcoin fit in does it hedge me on you know this risk or that risk and you know what is what is money like should i think i mean in an ideal world you know maybe people understand a little bit more about money because it, it does that does affect your day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. um but i do think it's important to um to focus on you know i think the masses of people are not thinking about things from an investment perspective prediction three a new crop of public bitcoin voices emerge which we need more. Sounds of. like a sounds like a self shill. Um, yeah. I, I don't, but but I I promise uh, was not meant as a self shill. Um, you know I think what what I was thinking about with that one was just that I do think that kind of like we were talking about earlier. I do think there are people starting to come to Bitcoin from a diversity of backgrounds and a diversity of previous life experience and. And, you know, also, um, of course, from from differing kind of political backgrounds or where they align themselves politically. And I think we're going to start to see just uh, like a sort of a greater variety of, of voices kind of coming to the space, telling their story. 
how they got to Bitcoin and what their journey was like um, that I think will resonate with an even larger kind of um, you know, basket of people. And I think, you know, up to this point, I mean, there's so many great, um, you know, prominent uh, Bitcoin voices who have been around for, for a while and have done so much uh, really kind of like yeoman's work educationally and have brought so many people in the space. Um, but at the same time, I do think, you know, you go to, you know, uh, I mean, I would actually give you a ton of credit, Daniel, your, your podcast, you do have a diversity of voices on, you have a lot of people. I mean, it's not kind of the, you're not rotating through kind of 10 people, um, you know, as, as intelligent and, and really kind of instructive and useful and wonderful as those 10 people are, you have a ton of different people on. Um, and I think that's important, uh, because if this is kind of a movement of, you know, of, and for everybody, uh, I think it, we should have kind of lots of people's voices heard because the everybody has a different life experience. And if you, some people's voices are going to resonate with other people more than, than others. And, uh, and I think ultimately that's good for adoption. So I think that realization is, uh, I think, dawning on a lot of people. And I think the conversations around Bitcoin, I'm hoping, um, you know, continue to get uh, just you know richer and, you know, more kind of textured and, I think it's okay for us to disagree with each other constructively sometimes and um, and be kind of more, you know, collaborative and in, in, in a messy um, but useful way. And so that's kind of what I was getting at there. Um, I hope it didn't come off as me saying, you know, look at me, new voice. Like, uh, <laughs> but um, no, but yeah, it, so. it, it, it didn't. And I, I know exactly what you're saying. And I, I'm 100% on board with that prediction. Um, the the amount of building that's been going on behind the scenes in what we call this in air quotes bear market has been incredible. The amount of new founders out there that are yet to even show what they've built, there's going to be a deluge and then they're going to hit the scene and they're going to hit the podcasts and they're going to hit the articles and and whatever else and show up at the conferences and and give the um the pitches and showcase what they've been building and there are some incredible yeah. projects and worldwide yeah. as well so i'm ready for it i'm i'm here for it I, I can't wait for all of those new voices to to come in to the the picture and, and share their ideas and their projects it's going to be awesome a prediction mm -hmm. for I I, we we already kind of covered um ethereum doesn't die we've we've already touched on that and uh and and the reasons as well. So we'll go to prediction five. Uh, Bitcoin remains our best, most credible hope to, to definancialize the world. Yeah, you know, I think this is, you know, just kind of a continuation of some of the stuff we've we've touched on is I think there remains um, every other, I mean, I, I think the broader crypto space is a good example of this. Every other kind of new technological development um, on the monetary front is kind of just... Uh, either a refinement of or an acceleration of this trend towards hyper-financialization that we've been experiencing, you know, for the last, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years um, in this fiat world that we live in and nothing, I mean, Bitcoin st it still stands alone as this, as I think the only credible, um, you know, opportunity to, uh, to definancialize the world. I think there are other projects that probably, claim or aspire uh, to do the same but i think currently the only um you know credible money that that can do that is is bitcoin i think we should all be feel very good that you know despite all the craziness of 2022 
and all of you know the the blood and gore and uh just volatility that's you know bitcoin nothing has changed about the fundamental uh you know case for bitcoin uh, in terms of you know being the best chance we have at definancializing the world tiktok next block there's exactly there's there's nothing else like it never will be uh so yeah you've nailed it all right mate i told you when we started an hour and a half is just going to fly by and here we are so i'm going to hit you with the last question and that is if you had just one last orange pill left to give to somebody who would you give it to and why oh man um that's really tough because i'm tempted they're almost like um I almost feel like uh, like they're like revenge orange pills that you could give. Like there's a party <laughs> that wants to give like an angry orange pill to Elizabeth Warren, you know? Yeah. But it course. wouldn't be one, it wouldn't be one given out of, out of kindness. Um, but I think that would do, that would do some good. So honestly, I think I might give one to, uh, you know, I might give one to my guy, Bernie. Um, I think before he you know leaves us on this earth, I think, and the reason why is because I think, uh, you know, Bernie has has worked his whole life uh, to you know diagnose these problems that Bitcoiners largely agree with, and he's been pursuing solutions that Bitcoiners that we all disagree with, you know, for reasons that I think are completely justifiable, make total sense. Um, but that being said, I think you can still respect at least that you know we are pointing to the same problems, and I think it would give certainly give me some satisfaction, and I would almost I almost want that for Bernie, you know, like I want him to know, hey man you were trying to do this your whole life. Um, mm -hmm. you, you really were trying to fight for some of this stuff uh, for a world that, you know, better uh, reflected kind of the ideals that I think we as Bitcoiners agree that we want to be in the world. Um, but you, you were trying to do it through means that it could, it could never work. It would never work through the means that you want to, that you want to use. But here's this thing, Bitcoin, take this orange pill. And then I could watch the joy on his face when he realizes, wow, this is, this is it, you know, this is what I, I could have been doing this. And yes, you know, I lost a couple of elections and it, it hurt um, and sort of going up against the status quo and challenging it and just being, you know, brutally put in my place essentially by the strength of just the status quo, um, you know, that didn't want things to structurally change, you know, as, as stinging as that was, you know, I can kind of retire and know that, Hey, there is this thing that, uh, that, that, you know, um, helps ameliorate a lot of the problems that I pointed out and it'll make me feel like, um, you know, I can kind of leave this political game and, and, you know, maybe contribute to Bitcoin in some way. So unpopular, but I'll, I'll give it to, I'll give it to Bernard. Well, Bitcoin fixes this and, uh, I'm sure he would, uh, Bitcoin might it. fix, it might fix Bernie Sanders too. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Well, how can people reach out to you and um, interact if they uh, if they want to follow up after this conversation? Sure. Thanks, Daniel. Um, so people, I do write a newsletter. Um, it's usually every two weeks. Sometimes I'm working on something a little longer uh, or more involved. It's every three. Um, but uh, that newsletter is thinkbitcoin.substack.com. Uh, it's totally free. Um, so subscribe, check that out. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at the Y of Phi. So the Y, W-H-Y of Phi, F-I. Um, yeah, relatively active on Twitter. Um, and check out the newsletter. Cool, man. 
Well, thank you again for coming on. Thank you for stepping up, sharing your thoughts and uh, being open to you know answering all of the questions. We need more voices, like you said, uh, and 2023 is going to be the year for that. So I hope to meet you in person. I'll, I'll be across from Miami. Um, so if you're on this side of the pond, let me know, and it'll be great yeah. to, uh, to catch up. Will do. Yeah, thanks very much, Daniel. This was a lot of fun. See you later, man. Bye-bye. Well, there you go, guys. That was the latest rip with Logan. I'm sure there's going to be many more to come with him. Uh, go and check out his Substack. It's Think Bitcoin, and um, he's you know, he he's a man on fire. He's a man on a mission, as you just heard. The latest uh, episode, uh, excuse me, article that he has up there is issue number forty-eight. Four thousand weeks of life and Bitcoin. So you can go and read up on that and check out all of his other articles that he's been dropping too. And yes, we need more voices. We need more voices. We need more singers, more dancers, more podcasters, more writers. I know you guys probably get tired of me saying this thing over and over again, but it's so true. And I know you're ready. Whatever it is that is stopping you stepping up and taking that first step forward to start whatever it is that you know your skill set can add value to this space and to all of the fellow plebs and to the people that have come before you, now's the time. 2023 is going to be a crazy year. There are so many projects being built in the background. I'm not sure if you guys have been following Geyser Fund just go and look you can support your plebs over there you can ping some sats anywhere in the world in an instant to show your gratitude and add some value to somebody that is trying to build a project and that could range from anything i mean it, it, it go, like i said go and check it's absolutely amazing and that's an unofficial shill for geyser for all the great work they've been doing make sure you're stacking sats you can use swan bitcoin you can use Relay and you can use Coin Corner and obviously HODL, HODL if you want that peer-to-peer non-KYC global trading platform experience. Then consider a CoinJoin. WasabiWallet.io is so quick and easy to download. You can do that in 30 seconds, create a wallet and run some coins through a CoinJoin. If that's your first time, it's probably a, the easiest way to start learning about it. Then it's up to you where you go there where you go with that education as we were discussing with Logan here there's no bottom to this rabbit hole please take control of your coin shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten have you covered with a bitbox o2 bitcoin only hardware wallet and orange pill app have you covered for meeting in real life download the app and see if there are any plebs near you in your town and then get go and meet them go and have a coffee go and have a beer go and share ideas stop being lonely don't be that guy that's just annoying other people that don't want to listen to you talk about Bitcoin. Go find someone of like mind. Get to BTC Prague. Get to Bitcoin Miami. Get to Liberty in our lifetime. More details for that one coming soon. These are great conferences and you can use the code BITTEN for discounts. I think I'm done, guys. I'll catch you on the next rip.